about to hear part two to this episode of climate mayhem if you haven't already go listen to part one to get the full story i get it now you're starting to really talk like the startup language which is a little bit more (laughs) my comfort zone i i get where you're going with that but a ton of innovation here as well from what i can see like just not as much like this happening but this democratizing of, of the net new additional sources of energy and then, of course, this distributed network all, all makes a ton of sense, at least in my startup brain, the yeah. startup side of my brain, um, where, where I'm getting that. And, you know, you guys mentioned already, so I want to jump ahead to this next piece because you talked about connecting with Greg at Pioneer Square Labs. Obviously, a startup venture studio here in Seattle that is innovative. I mean, these guys are trying to stay on that cutting edge of like what is next. And that's really what these startup studios, these venture studios get to actually try to do. But that being said, the venture capital market is the venture capital market. And so I'd love to hear beyond PSL and those guys, what have you guys learned about the money in this space from institutional investors? Who's looking at this? Do they have the savvy to talk about what you're talking about? Are they able to provide that value if, say, someone else interested in this space wanted to talk? Is there enough VCs out there? Are you finding the, the appetite for this? Yeah, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting kind of, I don't think uh, either one of us has been posed this question kind of together. So it'd be interesting to see the perspectives that, uh, look, we're well-funded with PSL. So we, I think we we feel pretty good with PSL's commitment and, you know, Greg is all in on this. And so, you know, we, we just had an offsite today with Greg all day. So it's just like, we feel the love from PSL and, and the commitment there. So we feel like we're very lucky to, to have that. At the same time, we're going to need capital to scale this thing, and we want to have broad climate impact. So we are out there talking to the VC community. And I think, and I, I get a couple of things. One is, you know, we're talking to all the major players, and we're talking to decision makers here, and there's a ton of interest in us. I think, and so that's on the plus side. I think on the stuff that is a little bit of a surprise is a lot of VCs fall into two categories. If they're kind of a traditional, and you know, Michael probably can answer this a lot more eloquently than I can. If they're on the traditional VC side, they're looking for kind of a software SaaS play or what a cloud play or whatever the latest Azure stuff is. If they're a carbon climate VC, what I've seen is they're really looking for a technology bet. They're looking for kind of a technology thing to solve this problem. And it's kind of they, they want the home run that, you know, which which is totally understandable for a VC. They make a lot of investments, they hit one home run. But I don't know if we're going to solve this problem with technology. Maybe, maybe no, someone gets a breakthrough. Or it's more of a we have the technology. Do we well, really that's the flip side. But do we need but new technology? I'm just saying the VCs are very focused on like I want to see the technology. The, you know, the, yeah. the, the cold fusion, the or widget, the, like scale the, the silver bullet of yeah. a piece of tech that no one else owns. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that's kind of one interesting perspective there on the that I've seen on the VC side. The other is, you know, we we have these innovative projects, and that's more of a private equity play. You know, that's that's going to be big checks, hundred million dollar checks to scale that, and so we kind of sit in between kind of the VC and the private equity world, and so we're trying to figure that out. Like, do we shift more a little bit here? Do we shift more over here? 
how do we shape our story? We've got a very powerful story, but you know, it's been an interesting ride. It's it's uh, finding the right partner. I think is going to be key for us. You know, I think that the the economy and stuff has been shifting out from under us. There's times when you can raise money on a team, and I think we've got a fantastic team who could easily raise money on our team in the space you're in. And you know, everyone's fighting over you know who gets to fund you know different teams. There's other times where company you know, VCs are a bit more cautious. And so I think that we've kind of gone from, because we're well-funded, we went from not really talking to VCs or we would, you know, if somebody really wanted to talk to us, we'd talk to them and say, well, we're not really raising, but we're happy to kind of make an introduction. And, you know, and then I think we've gotten a little bit more serious about let's talk to a few more and get a little bit more, but we haven't quite hit that, you know, let's get really aggressive about this. And I think to some extent, our calculation has been, look, I could sell on a team, I could sell on an idea and a vision. I'd rather sell on, on traction. We're closing some of our first sales. Um, we're you know working to build some of our first projects. And we just think that in general, don't take our word for it. Like, look at what we did instead of look what we might do. We thought would be a better way to raise. And so we'll see how that plays out. But I think that that's kind of been, and I think that that's, I think that some of the VCs at least have appreciated that of like, we'd love to talk when you've, made those, you know, so many sales and built so many projects, we've gone prior, you know, and I, I'm not having to take kind of a, a, as much of a bet, it'd be more interesting. But I, I think, I think it is kind of between the VC and then the project equity uh, or the uh, private equity. Private equity and, and I think that it's been interesting. It's just, I mean, talking to any kind of investor has been interesting uh, on this stuff, whether it's project investors or, or anything. And so I think it'll, I think it's going to take off. I feel really, you know, bullish on it. And I think it'll be easier as we've made a bit more traction. No, that totally makes sense. And and takes a little bit of the, like you said, the bet out of it for, for any investor. So I just real quick, a quick follow-up on the difference between private equity and VC. Have you seen a different kind of either sophistication around this or hunger around this in, in one market versus the other? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think... Size I think the VC is the biggest. What's that? Size of check is the biggest. Yeah, no, death side of checks is super different. But yeah, I think the VC's got a lot of sort of you know expertise around sort of technologies and private equity more on project, how you scale projects. Private equities are looking for something that is scalable, repeatable, kind of a model. They can write big checks and they just, you know, here's the playbook. You just keep playing on it. And I think on the VC side, they're you know, they are looking for, you know, they're looking for the breakthrough. You know, yeah, and that uh, ten extra, that ten, ten extra, yeah. and you know, I think yeah. I think we've got that as part of our story, but yeah, super, yeah, and it's interesting that you are having to straddle both worlds, though. I yeah. think there is there is uh, you shouldn't have to, in a lot of ways, in my opinion. And again, this goes back to like if you were to think forward of like an institutional investor. I mean, I think you guys bring up a really important piece of this, which is this problem may be solved by private companies like you guys, startups crushing this, but they're not going to solve it all with tech. We need a potentially, we need financing, we need funding, we need institutional investors to, to catch up to this concept that it's it's not one or the other. Uh, yeah, I think there's also business innovation and like legal innovation. And I think there's, you know, what is great design? Well, some of this is like about how you package and tell the story and, and how you make it easy and transactable. And I think that, you know, and this goes back to we started this company to have big impact, right? And I think that there are, I've got, you know, I know a lot of friends and stuff that have gone to work on climate, you know, startups and stuff. And I think some of it is kind of that, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, tech bro mentality of like, I'm just going to software this, right? I'll build an app and I'm going to change the world. What I like about Evergreen is, 
you know, we're trying to be really smart about not like we're not trying to own the whole stack. We're trying to partner with those around us and find something that scales and figure out what piece, where do we bring value? But we are not at all afraid of getting in the trench and kind of, you know, rubbing shoulders with our, our fellow, you know, warriors and figuring out how to get stuff done, uh, especially, you know, when we can learn and kind of better fine tune where we fit into all of this. So I think that that is climate change is a real world problem. Mm-hmm. You're not going to fix it with, you know, charity. You're not going to fix it with just software. It's going to get into the hard sciences and the physical world. And so that is different than a straight up SaaS play. And it's different than, you know, crazy innovation that's got this massive IP moat around it with, you know, hard sciences around, you know, I've got this way to do carbon removal, or I've got this way to do cold fusion. And so right. we are here to scale up, you know, the technology we need is here. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it'll yeah, keep yeah. The innovation is it will keep getting cheaper and it will keep scaling better, but we don't, it's, it's here and it's good enough. We just need to scale the heck out of it. And so I'm trying to kind of take uh, what I see is activity in the market and point it where it, it scales it even more. It's a powerful observation. I mean, this idea that, you know, there isn't a silver bullet in tech and there's got to be some innovation across the board and it's a real world problem. I, I, I love that, that, that idea. So. Team Earth, Team Earth, guys. Team Earth. Right, 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 right there, right? So the Inflation Reduction Act passed recently, right? And that seems to be a big deal. It might be the biggest climate bill passed on earth as of world history. That's a big deal. You guys mentioned uh, that we need to move faster, faster to 100% renewable energy. And that means faster than current market trends and incentives, you know, faster than governments and the way current companies have been doing it. Why do we need to move faster? We're still not on a path to net zero by 2050. Biden set out the goal of 100% renewal by 2035. We're still not on a path to that. And God help us if we actually got there sooner. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. Right. I think if I could like snap my fingers and have everything be running off of you know solar and wind, I think that'd be problematic. So I, I also think it's important not to be naive about this transition is more than just putting up a bunch of solar panels and wind farms. It's a fundamental changing of how the grid works and how you, you know, incentivize and reward kind of demand response. And there's a lot of facets to it, mm-hmm. but we could be moving and we need to move faster than we're moving. And the, the way I think about it, the other piece of it is if you take broadly all of energy, so that's everything. So not just electricity, but all of energy that everything we use to power, everything that, that we use to run our lives it's about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. It is a massive piece of the pie. And so as we move to electrify everything from HVAC to cars, to boats, to small aircraft, like eventually as we need to run more things on energy, like desalination, green hydrogen, direct air capture to like remove carbon out of the air, crypto, God help us. So (laughs) as we are using more energy, right per capita because we're doing more with energy as more of that energy is from electricity we need to not only replace the generation we have but we have to keep up with that new demand to make sure that it is renewables powering all those things or the green hydrogen isn't green right or the direct air capture is net negative etc cetera, etc cetera. so the importance and this is why i hit reset on my like i literally invested you know almost four years into learning all about soil carbon and carbon markets and basically hit the reset button because energy is so much more important in my mind. Um, It's not to say that other stuff isn't valuable and important, but the impact for every hour and every dollar spent in my mind is far greater in energy. And the importance of it is just paramount. If we don't get this done, 
nothing else matters in my mind. Nothing else is going to make up for it. This is just a, a critical piece. Yeah, I, I, just a couple of things I think are important. You know, one is velocity does matter in this whole climate fight. The more every year we delay this, it just it's it's a nonlinear impact on climate, and we're already seeing you know five year five hundred year floods in Texas like every other year. You know, it's like these these hundred degree. You know, I was down in Texas last week. It's like this summer's just been brutal. It's just it's getting off the rails, so to speak. Even Seattle here a year ago, we had this one in a thousand year heat dome where you had temperatures up here the hundred and ten. It's just like saw plants actually start to burn. It's like we got to do it faster because if we don't, it just gets, the problem just gets worse and worse. And so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing I want to emphasize Michael's point, like, you know, there's carbon capture, you know, extraction, you know, all sorts of technology out there. We got a bathtub overflowing water and you know, we can try to take water out with tablespoons or we can just turn off the faucet. And that is what we're trying to do. If we can turn, if we can turn off a, a fossil plant, if we can reduce the run, you know, from a baseload plant, coal plant to you know something that's not running at running at mid load, it's like every time we reduce the megawatt hours from fossil, we have a huge impact, and it's measurable, and it's accurate, and and the technology's here today. And so, why not move faster uh, on this thing, and why not get to 100% renewables? And I'm a utility guy. I'm, I'm realistic as well. I think to get to 70, 80% is very, very doable. That last 20, 30% in terms of making sure you address, you know, intermittency across all out, you know, all sorts of situations that the tail events, that's going to be hard. You're going to need long duration storage, but we can certainly be much, much higher. And so we, we want to put a bold goal out there around hundred percent renewables as fast as we can, 2030, if we can. So that's the, the most immediate obvious impact we can have in this climate fight and you know with this legislation that's come through it feels like now the the government is partnering with the private sector to make that happen i mean it feels like we can get to 40 yeah. percent reduction by 2030 and that's huge finally in a big way yeah you know one of my favorite um larry page at google once said internally um you know sometimes it's easier to do the thing that's 10x you know more audacious because it just fundamentally shifts your mindset to start thinking about doing it at that scale. I mean, I think that as you know, as species, you know, we have shown our ability to do great things in a short amount of time. You go like one of the biggest I think of is, my God, how much we moved mountains during World War II and how much we built up our manufacturing capabilities and we're turning out. And so I think climate, it's this slow moving. It's like, you know, you're the the frog or the lobster in the boil of the pot of water that's slowly boiling. And so the urgency doesn't feel as great, but I, I do think it's that level. And I think, you know, we are capable of moving faster and we just want to be part of that. And I think individuals know, or they're starting to know more, why they need to buy renewable energy. Why do companies need to buy renewable energy? Michael, we posed this question to you in the of this conversation. I feel like you had some really nice, nice thoughts and answers around that, because in some way, at the moment, it is voluntary. I mean, this is broadly like, why does a company have net zero goals? Why does a company yeah. think about their emissions? Why does it measure? Why does it try to do something about them? And, and the truth is, the only way to buy renewable energy, to truly buy it, to have those electrons is you build something on site. Anything else, even if you're buying it through a green tariff program with your utility, there's no way to guarantee the actual electrons you got. It's like a big bathtub of, of electricity and you put some, you know, apple juice in the bathtub, and then you pulled out a cup of water, and you said, "I got 100% apple juice." Well, you know, so the best you can do is put in a cup of of apple juice and take out 
and say, okay, it's, you know, I put in a cup, I took out a cup and I know that, you know, it kind of, but my theory on why companies care, why do companies do anything about this is I've got, I think it's like one of four reasons. So one is they care because they see the risk to their business, right? They see that like, gosh, if we don't do something about this, my business isn't going to continue to flourish, whether it's, you know, travel or whether it's, you know, other things. You know, I think there's a number of examples where just companies really see, and I think the SEC is requiring them to start reporting on or is, is petitioning to start reporting on the risk to their business to better understand that so investors can understand that. So I think it's it's paramount to them continuing to exist uh, as a company and be profitable. I think the second is maybe it's not paramount to their business, but the founders or the leadership in the company just straight up cares. They say like, this is important. We're, this is kind of team earth, Right. Um, and so we're going to do our part. We're going to actually look at how are we, you know, while if we aren't regulatory required to consider the cost of, you know, of kind of pollution, we're going to go ahead and track it. We're going to do something about it. And that's a growing trend of a lot of companies, you know, really trying to understand that, quantify what are their, what's their footprint of their business across different layers, indirect and direct, and do something about that. I think another is they feel pressure. So maybe leadership doesn't really care or give two cents. But this is where individuals, I think, you know, the big thing individuals can do is, as I like to say, is A, they can just talk about it. A lot of people don't even talk about climate change to their friends and family, coworkers. B is, you know, vote about it. And C is push, you know, anyone around you that you can care about it, really. So I think that when companies feel pressure from their customers, when they feel pressure from their employees, when they feel pressure from their investors, all that stuff adds up to pressure that they eventually feel like they have to act on. And it just becomes part of status quo. And I think the last kind of interesting one is sometimes companies are just trying to avoid regulation. They're trying to self-regulate before they get regulated. I think Corsia and the IKO the, with all the inter, all the airlines with international travel is an example of possibly that. And again, I don't know that that's what it is, but like my theory is they're trying to say, hey, don't, don't give me rules. Uh, we're taking care of this. Don't worry about it. And then they get to kind of set those rules themselves before governments set it for them. So what I heard there a little bit was we got to start pressuring more companies to do this because if they start hearing from us more, they want to buy in some way. So the last piece of the puzzle that I want to explore with your product, Evergreen, and this idea, I believe it's in the VPPA in how companies actually can start to buy into this. So talk to us a little bit about what, you know, how do companies get more access to buying renewable energy via Evergreen? and the VPPA process. Let me take a first cut at it, even though this is probably more Michael's space. What we're selling is this concept of additionality. Your project, your support, your investment is making a difference, is standing up as if it were happening on your rooftop. For better or for worse, this concept of VPPA has gotten out there as that's the way to make that happen. That's what Google and Microsoft have done. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest and that's kind of what, you know, we have that product available to our customers. We also find that that product is pretty complicated. You're taking some market exposure risk there based on kind of whatever wholesale market you're selling into. The Googles and the Microsofts of the world, they can handle that. They can have full energy staff to kind of you know, model where ERCOT is going or, you know, and so they can, they can manage that. I think what we have found is like part of our innovation is if we can bring a forward contract commitment to that project. If it's a VPPA, we're all for it. We can do it. We can man it, you know, but there might be easier ways of doing it. You know, maybe it's a collared VPPA where it's tightly collared, where you, you know, you've got a lot less exposure on the, on the up and down. Maybe it's even a fixed price VPPA. Like it's, it's still a virtual power purchase agreement, but it's fixed price. 
And so, you know, we're trying to make this as easy as possible because what we don't want to do is have someone be enamored. Like I want a VPPA because that's what I heard Google has. Then they go in there and then they take it to their CFO and they say, well, what? You, we're not going to be forecasting energy prices. You're crazy. Let's get this out of here. And so we, we lose the ball on that. So I think we've been trying to simplify it. And while we are still super excited about the VPPA concept, we're also super excited about simplifying that as a way, like just make a forward commitment to that project. It could even be a rec purchase agreement where you're buying the environmental attributes in a meaningful way and you're standing up that project a fixed VPPA, a collar VPPA, but we're trying to simplify that in a very meaningful way so that we can sell the additionality, but we don't get stuck in you know the complexity and jargon that's out there right now. You mentioned at the end of that, uh, a REC, which is a renewable energy certificate or a renewable energy credit. Sometimes those are used interchangeably, but a REC is really at the core of all this. And that's largely, there's over 110,000 companies that spend money in some way to address their scope to emissions. So again, the indirect emissions from the electricity that they use. Buying RECs from a broker is by far the number one way that companies do this. And those are typically pretty cheap. They're typically on the order of $1 to $3 per REC. And so think about it this way. If it costs you, you know, $100,000 to build solar on-site on a, a big warehouse or building or something, but instead you could go get that same impact, quote unquote, Somewhat, this is my words or my, my kind of thinking. I think how companies think about it is they're interchangeably. Instead of doing that, I'm just going to go buy, you know, a thousand recs or 5,000 recs. It's going to cost me 10 grand a year. Like how on earth did something that was, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or hundred thousand dollars, was it the same as just spending, you know, five grand a year? How are those equitable? And so something smells kind of funny. And I think the defenders of RECs would say, well, that's not really how RECs are supposed to work. So the theory of RECs is, so basically the way it works is every time one megawatt hour of clean energy is delivered to the grid, the grid operator will issue a single REC. So one REC equals one megawatt hour of clean energy delivered to the grid. And it is there the sole kind of entity for issuing those. So you know there's not double issuances, not double counting. And then those RECs can be sold. Now, originally this was built up for compliance, right? States say we need this many clean energy, you know, this many megawatt hours of clean energy being generated. So this was kind of stood up to count those and make sure that we are tracking towards those goals. Um, and I think they work for that. But then they kind of started getting, so when states started meeting their goals, as Texas did, they set a low goal and they met it years ago. And they have no, they have no intention, I don't think, of, of setting a new one. Those wrecks then flood kind of the voluntary market where companies are voluntarily, this is all voluntarily, wanting to kind of clean up their emissions. And so, hey, I'll buy some wrecks and I can get them. And we've talked to companies that are, they boast, hey, this year I got them for $2. I'm really excited. Got them for even less, right? They're trying to spend as little as they can. It's an added cost. It's a voluntary action. Why wouldn't they try to spend as little as they can? Problem is, when they get that cheap, you know, and it's it's why are they so cheap, right? Is it because of their oversupply or lack of demand? Is it because you know developers aren't asking for enough? Like some for some reason, there's a lot of recs that are very cheap. And when the recs are that cheap, and we go in and look at those projects and we've looked firsthand at projects, you know, that were the recs represent less than half of a percent of the overall financing cost. They're usually sold up front to a broker. The RECs aren't getting it done. And so these long-term contracts, right, a virtual power purchase agreement or a REC purchase agreement, the whole thinking or the whole like math behind it, there's tons of research that ends. Why is that impactful and just buying RECs in the spot market not? Is because if it is a long-term commitment, 
to a project yet realized for a significant enough price, the project will literally take that long-term commitment to the bank, to the investor and say, hey, I have this extra stream of income that's going to boost my returns or make sure I can cover my loan payments. And now will you finance my project? And we, the way we test this is we literally have taken projects to those investors or banks and said, will you fund it without the sponsorship? And they've said, no, the returns aren't high enough. The risk is too great. You know, and we see the risk at defaulting to be too great because there are soft years when energy prices are lower. So that is kind of our way of testing for this contribution is needed, is impactful. And so you bring this long-term commitment at, you know, maybe the REC is, is you know, quite a bit more. It might be $20 a REC. But a long-term, a five-year, a 10-year commitment to buy at $20, that I can use to fund a project that wasn't going to happen otherwise. And so it's a different way of getting RECs that truly stands up projects. And that is, is kind of our bread and butter. And then we're trying to kind of think around where can we make things better for anyone around that table in any way around these projects, right? How do we, we let landowners co-invest and own some of the equity in the project if they want to benefit from it. We let, you know, there's tax credits that are now going to be easier to monetize. And we might let companies, you know, make more money off the projects in that way. So we're kind of looking for how, you know, I've got a bunch of people around a table from the utility, the company, the landowner, the developer, all of the, the, the utilities customers, right? How can we be thoughtful? And if we can make things better for everyone around that table, truly stand up projects and address, you know, what a company is really trying to, the impact they're trying to have in the world. We think that that is a, is an idea worth, worth having. Super interesting. I mean, just, you know, again, I love that we built off this idea of additionality and then of course, more access, more ways and, and getting creative with these, I don't mean to oversimplify them, but seem like financial vehicles for, for companies to get into this world. I mean, I think it, you know, it goes back to your original premise of more access, right? This is what we need. We need more companies who can have more ways to access this. And then the last piece is more access to actual renewable energies, which is the additionality, which I love. Yeah, su super, super good, guys. Hey, Jacob, uh, I think it's time, man. It's time. It's time. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up here, guys. We're going to do something we like to do called rapid mayhem questions. It's going to be directed at Chris over here. So they're around renewable, clean energy space. And Michael, feel free to jump in and provide any color since you already like the cheat sheet of uh, true or false answer. So it's true or false. <laughs> you provided. Yes. You provided. Uh, so, so Chris, are you ready? Yes. All right. Okay. True or false. Renewable energy creates four times more jobs and fossil fuels. Hmm. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say it, it depends. I just straight up, I'd say that's false, but it really depends. I mean, I, again, if I if I look at it, sort of a, a coal plant, you know, or gas, you know, you, you've got a hundred employees here operating that plant. If you look at a solar farm, you know, it's <laughs> you might have an employee checking in on it remotely. But if you're talking about the entire vertical, you know, if you're now starting to manufacture panels, yep. And, storage devices and batteries here and you know all the ancillary services around the solar so i think it really depends on what we're talking about yeah. here if it's if it's just more the power facilities themselves or if it's the full value chain yeah okay it is true but great context when it comes to exclusively coal and gas excluding oil that number is five to one uh, and then Michael, I feel like you got something to, to add here. Yeah, I had some, okay. I, I dug in this a little bit. So I wasn't, I kind of was, my knee-jerk reaction is what Chris's was like, I don't know, maybe it, it seems like it would depend. And and I think that really it's it's a four to one or four X for what, right? Four X, does that mean per plant, per megawatt hour, per dollar invested? And so I, yeah. I saw some research on for every million dollars the United States 
and I don't know if this is the government puts into it, um, it was about 2.7, 2.8x. So there is a multiplier there uh, for every dollar the government spends. And so if you're thinking of what is the government investing in, not just from a clean energy and climate perspective, but from a job creation standpoint, it seems like renewables are, are the way to go. Yep. Wow. All right. Nice. I love that color. All right. On to the next one. All right. True or false? Renewable energy sources generated 20% of global electricity in 2021. Again, does this include hydro or? This includes uh, hydroelectric, solar, wind, biomass, and geothermal. Not nuclear. Yeah. Not was, nuclear. Yeah, I would say at least that much. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's true. So it, okay. it, it is true. It actually surpassed the amount of energy produced from coal, which stopped at 36.5% in the same year in 2021, despite seeing a rise. All right. Great. Number three. True or false, all renewables are getting cheaper except offshore wind. I think that's historically been certainly the case. Uh, you look at solar, it you know, followed up through a declining cost curve, battery storage. I think recently with supply chain issues, I think you know, we've seen a leveling, maybe even increase in some of the costs there. So I think historically, yes, absolutely, they've gotten cheaper. I think here over the past year or two, they've gotten more expensive. Okay. And the stat I, I pulled was from 2020. It, the, it's actually false. It's that all renewables, including offshore wind, have gotten cheaper. That's going to be my okay. question. Why isn't offshore wind getting cheaper too? Maybe labor. It's probably that hard. a trick question. Yeah. <laughs> it was a trick question. Try, try, you guys are too smart. I'm trying to trick you a little bit. Mm, all right. Yeah. Last question, true or false. Every hour, the sun beams enough solar energy onto Earth to keep everyone on our planet supplied with electricity for an entire year. True or false? Uh, I definitely say that's a true statement. Okay. At least if that's, yeah. I've heard a stat like that in, in some yep. way. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, okay. I think the, the interesting, uh, I feel like it's absolutely true, but it's also like, you know, it's somewhat, it's somewhat misleads as to how, how easy it is, right? Like, I think it's yeah, a great true. eye opening, <laughs> but like, it makes it sound like, well, this is so easy. Like it's there for an hour. Like why, why not? And just the, it kind of goes back to distributing that energy, storing it, you know, when yes. it's not, blown, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, are the challenges, you know, upon us. And so, yes, the energy is there for the taking, um, but our ability to utilize it, you know, it's it's not a, a cakewalk. Yeah. It's there to be had. That's right. It's part of the challenge. All right. We're having mayhem questions complete. The, nice the, job, guys. The yeah, chamber is closed. a lot of color, a lot of color to those. I like it. That's like good. It. All right, guys. It's been so fun. Uh Last last thing, you know, climate change is so big. People often feel helpless in taking action. Uh, you guys are involved in a B2B play. It sounds really promising. How can the average consumer play into this, uh, someone listening? We started a little bit of a, as a B2C play. We may come back to that idea. Like, you know, we want to make all dollars available to uh, this energy transition. You know, the B2B obviously is the space we're focusing, but there's, you know, there's, I think there's opportunities in the B2C, in the consumer play that we'd like to get back to. But I, I would say, you know, just being engaged on the dialogue and, and leaning into this and doing everything you can to reduce your carbon footprint. I mean, there's just with this uh, climate legislation that's that's come through. I mean, there's huge tax incentives to, you know, to electrify your homes or your business to, you know, to go to a heat pump to replace natural gas, to put solar on on your roof, to put geothermal. I've got geothermal in my house. And so, yeah, so I, I think there's just a lot of opportunities consumers can basically financially make, you know, really good investments in their own homes and businesses to, uh, to reduce their carbon footprint. 
And I think it is, I think the key there is that it is a financial, financially beneficial. And you should crunch the numbers and make sure for your situation that it may make sense. Like I was excited to buy an electric car, but I waited till my previous car was 20 years old and needed to be replaced. So I think that it's easy to get into, I'm doing this because of climate. Um, and I actually think that that is the wrong reason to spend money on this stuff. I think that you do it. So I, I have my own kind of personal pet peeve around this, around kind of putting, and you even look at the history of you know carbon footprint. And some of that is out of BP doing some stuff and trying to kind of point the finger at the consumer and say, this is on you. And it's your responsibility to take care of your footprint. There's a whole bunch of, I think, problems with that. So, you know, look, my house has got solar on it. I've got an electric car. I've got an electric, you know, I'm a vegetarian, all these things. I don't do these things because I think my decisions you know, I am one of 7 billion people are going to like save the earth. I do it because I think it's good to support the companies trying to put those solutions out there to help show them that customers care, to help them stand up their businesses and those solutions so that they get cheaper and eventually they are just a better option for everyone else. And I do it because I think it's a great conversation starter. And it's a good way to signal to those around me that the house is on fire, right? Like if you see smoke in the distance, you might go, huh, I wonder what that is. I wonder if that's like a you know campfire. Is that just some steam? Maybe it's not even smoke. I don't know. If you see someone hauling butt next to you with a bucket and a hose, you realize there's something's, something's wrong. And you either run away or you run towards it, depending on you know kind of your default thoughts on that. So I think that signaling to those around is having conversations, voting, you know, pressuring, you know, when you can, and don't do it to assuage guilt. Don't have guilt. Right. I mean, I think it's great to care about your footprint. You know, don't don't be wasteful. It's just like you don't litter. Right. Like you try to recycle when you can. Don't be gratuitously wasting of energy. Turn off the lights at night. You know, use LED bulbs. Do smart things, of course. But like, don't don't like there's no value in feeling like just a boatload of guilt about like taking a flight to see, you know, grandma and saying, my God, that was 12 tons of CO2. And how am I going to offset? I got to buy offsets. I think a lot of offsets are sold around this guilt. I have bought offsets in the past. I don't buy them now. Um, I think doing it around kind of the, for the other reasons, I think is, you know, either financial benefit or to, you know, stand up companies you care about that are selling solutions that you think are important um, or to just have conversations with people about climate change. Yeah, I mean, I just have to say that's a super unique and interesting perspective, and it really backs yeah, up what we're before. doing here. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're talking to companies that are doing this for profit. We've made that clear because lots of people talk to nonprofits or governmental organizations or even B corps, but we're trying to talk to the people who are doing this in the innovative, you know, VC startup, whatever funded world. And I think what you said makes a lot of sense. One of the questions we we're, we're kind of playing with is this idea of do you spend, how do we spend our dollars? Should we be spending our dollars here? And what you said is don't do it out of guilt, do it out of support, do it because you believe the house is on fire and you want to figure out your way to run towards it and help out. I like that. Yeah. And look, we appreciate y'all giving us a platform to to tell our story. I think it's important that more people, more companies connect into this. Uh, I mean, we're we're not going to, there's not any single technology that's going to solve this problem. Any, any single company, Google, Microsoft, not going to solve this. It's going to take all of us. So uh, we really appreciate the, the conversation here. Yeah, we appreciate it too. Well, guys. we appreciate you coming. I mean, the, the innovative approaches you guys are taking to this, even just the, the pure mission of trying to provide more access and putting more renewable energy is super interesting to us. And uh, yeah, thanks for that. 
Guys, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing. Your passion's contagious. I mean, I feel like Ty and I are even even more zealous about this whole thing. And like, and for just doing what you guys are doing, you know, like you guys are both pretty established already in your careers. And this is something that there are still a lot of people that are so polarized that this is not even real, right? And uh, that's in some way working at a company and you guys leading a company is 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 really brave. So I just want to thank you on that too. I appreciate it, Jacob. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, for any companies out there, we're at www.ever.green and yeah. just connect with us. We'd love to love to talk to y'all. I think we're always looking for, you know, other people to partner to, you know, kind of one plus one equals mm-hmm. three. Or if you're a company that's looking to address your uh, emissions, uh, you know, kind of in a in a high integrity way, like we'd love to talk to you and we can, you know, we're happy to to say, hey, look, our solution isn't the best solution. And actually one customer we had, we pointed them at onsite. And we said, you know, you should talk to our developers directly and build solar onsite. That's going to be better for you. So we really do take that kind of team earth mentality, you know, to heart. Uh, where we're trying to to help everyone do the best they can. And we think we've got something great for a lot of companies. Um, and uh, we'd love to talk to to more about that. So you told us how what what companies should do. What about us as consumers? Which companies should we be pushing your way? How do you talk to people? Like what what kind of what's your target audience in the company world that we should be bugging yeah. to know more about Evergreen? It's usually the sustainability officers, if there is one in some companies. I would say if you're at a company that doesn't have a sustainability officer, we've talked to a couple of small companies. I'll give a shout out to Figma, uh, which is one that's near and dear to my heart as a designer. And I know the head of design there. They've got a couple of engineers. They don't have a head of sustainability. They have a couple of engineers that took it upon themselves to kind of start a, a club around it and eventually petition the finance team to give them budget to spend on some of this stuff. So they're kind of bootstrapping it, if you will, from inside. Yeah. So Internal internal activists. I love absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think that, you know, whether it's the company you're at or, you know, I, I think it's hard to like, you, what are you going to do? Walk into, you know, Walmart and say, you should go buy, you know, uh, a long-term contract of energy from, like, it's hard to kind of get in. But if you know people at these companies or if you're at a company yourself, I think pushing for the, those are this, you know, sustainability team, sometimes the finance team, usually sustainability team often will roll up through the finance team. And we have products that are purely around, look, We've got like the tax credits are a great example of it's not about buying renewable energy. It's just about you can contribute money and make a little bit of money and help these projects get stood up. You're not getting wrecks out of it, but you make a little bit of money on it and you're helping kind of contribute to, you know, the acceleration. So finance team, sustainability team, those tend to be the teams that we we tend to talk to, but happy to talk to anyone or start, you know, with anyone who's just curious about it. Some of our conversations have started out of people I know in my network that are like software engineers. I just want to work on climate you know, that's awesome. And here's how I think about that and what you could do, but you could also, you know, put us in touch with people at the company you're already at. Let's see, yeah. if, you know, we'll yeah. get some impact great call done uh, yeah. where you're that's at. That's a great call out. You don't have to change your career to have impact. Yeah, yep. it's a start. And tell us the website one more time. It was yep. a unique just one. Ever.green. So .green ever. instead of .com. So it's just ever.green. Ever.green. That's catchy. Yeah. Guys, thanks yeah. so much. All right. All right, All right guys. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Bye-bye. Boom. How is that? Well, there's more. So keep listening. We speak with climate tech leaders and change makers in EV, reforestation, solar energy, flood mapping, and a whole lot more. Also, you can give feedback or check out show notes at our website, climatemayhem.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Oh, don't forget, if you found this valuable or interesting at all, please hit subscribe. That way we know you're loving it. 
So just go to Spotify or whatever podcast app you're on. Hit that subscribe button at the top. Production was done by Daniel Steenkamp with cover art by Harrison Glenn. This is Jake Kubica with my legendary colleague, Ty Wolf motherfucking Jones. Peace out, Climate Mayhem. Out. Thank you.